Hello and welcome to episode 374 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Ben Olson, that's Nathan Fox. Together we're the co-founders of LSATdemon.com and the LSAT Demon Daily podcast. If you want to get on an upcoming show, email us at help at thinkinglsat.com. We are going to record tomorrow. This is airing on Monday, October 31st, 2022. Um, the next LSAT is just around the corner. Uh, November, that's November 11th and 12th. But the one after that is in January, January 13 and 14. The registration deadline for that test is December 1st. Uh, you don't need to make a decision until then. So just take a look at your practice test scores. If they're where you want your test score to be, then go ahead and sign up for the January LSAT. Uh, you can find all these dates at lsat.link forward slash dates. If you haven't done so already, but you listen to this podcast, I would encourage you to come to Nathan's free class. Even if you can't make it uh, on Fridays, uh, every other Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, you can still watch the recording of that class. The next one is on Friday, November 4th. It's LSAT Minute, sorry, <laughs> LSAT, Last Minute LSAT Tips with Nathan. I guess that's right before the November LSAT. So what are you going to talk about? Uh, well, you have to come to the class to find out. I mean, this is last minute LSAT tips. If I gave them to you all now, it wouldn't be last minute and you wouldn't come to the class. So uh, oh, come join me. We'll go. see what we talk about. Yep. You can sign up for that at LSAT.link forward slash nation, Nathan, not Nathan nation, although it's kind of like Nathan's nation when you go to that class. Cool. What was one thing you liked on the today's show? We started with a long email from Anthony following up from uh, previous discussions about the LSAT and IQ. I thought that that was uh, very helpful to learn more about what the IQ tests, what, what IQ even is, and why some people might think that the LSAT is related to IQ. Yeah, I agree. It was a thoughtful email. It's something that Anthony has thought a lot about. He admits that he's not an expert in psychometrics, but... Boy, when it's something you're passionate about, you certainly can learn a lot. And he's he's informed enough that it was a it was an interesting discussion. So thanks, Anthony. Let's dive in. Let's jump into this email from Anthony. It's about IQ and the LSA. You want to read it? Yeah, a follow up from something that we talked about just recently. Um, do you remember what it was where somebody or other was claiming that the LSAT is an IQ test? Yeah, Jordan Peterson was claiming that and someone shared us that idea. Yeah. Um, not sure what to think about Jordan Peterson. Anyway, it, it was very puzzling to me because wait, IQ is a, we, I don't, I don't really know what IQ was, but if IQ is an intelligence test, mm -hmm. I don't think the LSAT is a good IQ test unless you're not allowed to prep because when you are allowed to prep, you improve by <laughs> what do we see people improve by all the time? Yeah. I mean, enormous amounts of points. So then it's like what your IQ is going up or, and I think this email is going to address this, but is the test work as an IQ test better at the beginning or at the end? Right? Like even then, I don't know the whole IQ yeah. realm is a little bit like yeah. circular to me. I wonder. So if I think this is going to shed a little bit of light. This is Anthony's email. It says, uh, I've been thinking about how the LSAT relates to IQ for a while, and this seems like a good time to share my thoughts. However, my undergraduate degree is in engineering and psychometrics is, oh, sorry. My undergraduate degree is engineering. Psychometrics is merely a hobby interest of mine. 
please take everything I say with a grain of salt. OK, so that's a good sign. Somebody who knows they don't know everything, um, but does know some things clearly from the rest of this email. IQ measures arise from the observation that if a person performs well on an arbitrarily chosen test, that person is highly likely to perform well on any other arbitrarily chosen test. IQ tests are designed so that each test within the test, or sorry, each task within the test measures a different aspect of cognitive ability. For instance, one task will have the test taker rotate pictures in their mind, and another will ask the test taker questions about a story they read. These narrow stratum one tests are grouped into broader stratum two measures where performance on a similar stratum one task, sorry, where performance on similar stratum one tasks comprise stratum two measures. For example, picture rotation, spatial rotation, block rotation are the three stratum one tasks that comprise the visual perception stratum two measure. Got okay. it so far? I think so. Stratum one is the actual questions. The task. Yeah. And then stratum two is the result. It sounds like. Yeah. And they're grouped into various stratum two measures. So visual perception is one of the stratum yep. two measures. And there were these lower level um, tests or the tasks themselves that made up the stratum two measure. Okay. Remarkably, performance on any stratum two measure is highly correlated with every other stratum two measure. Wow. So you're good at visual perception. You're also good at uh, verbal reasoning or verbal comprehension. Apparently. <laughs> okay. This suggests, says Anthony, that the stratum two measures are not measuring distinct aspects of cognitive ability. Rather, they're measuring the same underlying factor, the stratum three G <laughs> factor. And then there's a link here for a visual representation of the strata. IQ represents the percentile score of an individual's G factor. The IQ scale is defined so that the average G factor score translates to an IQ of 100. Each standard deviation is defined as 15 IQ points. Thus, if a person's composite G factor score is one standard deviation above average, that person is said to have an IQ of 115. So it, it's stratum one are the actual tasks. Stratum yep. two is the short, narrow results or areas yeah. of reasoning yep. allegedly. But Anthony is saying maybe not because they're all all the stratum two measures are so highly correlated together that really what we're probably just looking at is this higher level stratum three G factor you can call it, but other people it sounds like are calling it well. Sorry, IQ is the percentile score of your G factor. Yeah, so the G factor is one level above that, and it's like coming down on everything. Okay. So if you're one standard deviation over, that's a 115. If you're two standard deviations over, basically on any test, right? It's just like you're, you're sort of just better on all the tests is what IQ would mean. Hmm. Okay. If we conceptualize sections of the LSAT as types of stratum one tests, then I think it's reasonable to expect a diagnostic LSAT score to correlate fairly well with IQ. Once someone begins to study LSAT material, I would expect the predictive power of their score to diminish. This is because stratum one tests are learnable, but learning a specific stratum one test does not lead to improvement on other unrelated stratum one tests or G factor in general. In fact, the holy grail of IQ research is to find a test where improved performance on that test is associated with increased performance in other unrelated tests, and hence an improvement in G-factor slash IQ. 
No such test has ever been found. I guess that means including the LSAT. Yeah, that's interesting. So basically, uh, when you take a test, that initial diagnostic is a reflection, in theory, of your general intelligence. But then when you start practicing for it, you probably have other co you know, compensating mechanisms coming in there and saying, okay, apparently you need to get good at this. And so however we can do it, we're going to make you better at this. And sometimes people get better through, I know this is going to sound weird, but memorization even, right? Like you just remember like, oh, any equals if, okay, now I can understand what that means. And that's their coping mechanism to score high. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I, at this point, we're halfway through Anthony's email, but it just seems like Jordan Peterson is wrong or would need to amend to say, well, it's an IQ test if you're not allowed to prep for it. Yeah. Who knows what Jordan Peterson said? Right. But no I guess there is some maybe there is some merit to this idea that it can test at least some element of IQ, which may then test all elements if they're highly correlated. Well, yeah. and it almost strikes me that any test could be used as an IQ test, right? It's it's like pick any test at random, go take that test, see how you do with no yep. prep whatsoever. And yeah, sure, that might be an IQ test. I mean, because it seems like IQ is a measure of how good you are at tests. Yep. We're going to test your cognitive ability. That's what tests are. In a, in a million different ways, but like they they are correlated. They're all correlated with one another, apparently. Um, and, you know, I will say that in my life, like my experience is very similar. I, I did really well on the SAT and then, yeah, I actually took the GMAT, the GRE and the LSAT and I didn't have a problem with any of them. You know, I had to do some prep to polish up the areas that I wasn't just naturally good at. But um, there is certainly something here where it's obvious that like, I mean, we've said this a million times, right? If you killed the SAT, you're going to kill the LSAT. Mm hmm. I mean, there's there's I don't I don't think I've ever met anybody who's like, well, I had no problem with the SAT, but I just really can't get this LSAT. I'm, I've never there's not one person. Have, have you? No, no, I don't think so. OK. All right. Continuing. This leads me to wonder why a learnable test is well correlated with 1L grades and career success, because we've had, you know, law school deans tell us or tell the world that. They are interested in the LSAT because it predicts 1L grades. And studies have been done on this and there's show, there has shown to be a correlation. It's not perfect, but a correlation between these things. Yeah. Yeah. This leads me to wonder why a learnable test is well correlated with 1L grades and career success. One possibility is that the upper limit of a person's ability to do well on the LSAT, official scores after extended studying, is moderately correlated with IQ. Since IQ is the strongest psychometric predictor of grades and career outcomes, if LSAT scores are correlated with IQ, then they should also be correlated with grades and career outcomes. Another possibility, says Anthony, is that official LSAT scores measure some combination of IQ and the psychometric personality trait of conscientiousness, essentially a person's propensity to work hard. Conscientiousness is the second strongest psychometric predictor of grades and career outcomes. Thus, a test that measures IQ and trait conscientiousness should also predict grades and career outcomes. What do you think about that, Ben? Do you think that the LSAT after prep indicates conscientiousness slash ability to work hard? I do. I think that's a component that's revealed through your LSAT score, but that's going to vary from 
test taker to test taker, right? Some people who get up there quicker, uh, maybe more of what's reflected in their high score is their IQ or their ability to learn yeah. or whatever. So, well, yeah, if you're an asshole like me who, you know, scores 170 or whatever on their very first ever practice test, like me getting from 170 to 179 is not a sign of conscientiousness. If conscientiousness means hard, means hard work. Yeah, what you need to do is you need to look at their cold diagnostics, see their final score, and then if the cold diagnostic score kind of reflects their IQ, but they have a very high final score, well, then you could say, hmm, this test or this final score is reflecting more of their conscientiousness <laughs> and hard work, if, right? If schools want hard workers, they should be preferring applicants who have really bad initial scores on record. You know, yep. it's like, yeah. oh, wow, you actually scored a 149, but then you ended up scoring a 172. Damn, you're a hard worker. And I agree with that a thousand percent. Like, I think the LSAT tests how hard you can work. I think that it's clear in the logic games that they're it, it's a great test of do you give a shit? Like, are you going to prepare in order to get, you know, where you want to be? Yeah. Like no brainer. I mean, in class, how many times like you get people who are like, well, I've been studying and I just I'm so discouraged because I just, you know, I, I just suck at the games and I just I've been working at this and I'm just not there and I just don't think I'm ever going to get there. And then I'll go, oh, OK, well, so that's great. I mean, I understand you feel, um, you know, it's hard. It's hard to work at something and then not make progress. That sucks. I'm sorry. Um, how many games would you say you've done? And yeah. then you see that student go, well, you know, I mean, I've been doing like, uh, you know, lots. And you go, yeah, all right, how many? Well, I mean, I've probably done like 40 games. Yeah. Yeah. And when they say 40 games, I, I'm like, OK, great. So you've done 10 percent of the games that are available to you to prep. And some That's people have done all of those games twice. Right. So. We have a new teacher who teaches for us who did all of the tests three times. Yep. That's you know, conscientiousness. That's being... conscientiousness. Yeah. Yeah. That's somebody who really gives a shit. And, you know, when you improve 30 points from your diagnostic, that's an obvious sign of, OK, like this is somebody who really gets how hard they're going to have to work in order to make progress on this test. You know, not everybody is blessed with the sky high IQ, which is just ability to do well on any test. Yeah, some of us are. But many of us aren't, and that doesn't mean you can't be successful on the LSAT. You you then this other element of how hard are you going to work at it to improve comes in. So in at this point, Anthony is talking about IQ and conscientiousness as these potential predictors or maybe the things that are correlated with grades and career outcomes. But I also just wonder, since <laughs> your final LSAT score can reflect either your IQ or conscientiousness or these adaptations, right? These things that you're getting better at that maybe also help you with grades and also help you with a legal career, right? Like getting better at recognizing premises and conclusions and evaluating logical relationships. That's a skill. And couldn't that also be a third factor that's also helping you with your grades and your career outcomes? I mean, why not? Yeah. I mean, I don't think the test is totally arbitrary. They designed it with specific things in mind. It's not a great 
replication of law school, but it is a mini replication in some respects. Yep. Okay. So three different things that we think we're looking at when we look at an LSAT score. Yep. We're looking at IQ for sure. Yep. It's somewhere in there. Yeah. We're looking at this conscientiousness slash hard work ability. And then we're looking at the actual tasks themselves that the things you're getting better at. Yep. Which are reading comprehension, attacking arguments and solving logical puzzles, which all three of those things are extremely valuable in law school. Yep. And a legal career. They may not translate to other tests, which is why if you take another test, you're going to have a lower (laughs) cold diagnostic, but they are going to translate to the LSAT and maybe translate to law school and maybe translate to legal practice, at least somewhat. (laughs) <laughs> but your your reading comp, like, you know, your your ability to read and yep. understand what's on the page, your ability to attack, analyze arguments and your um, ability to synthesize, you know, solving the systems, the very yep. pretty simple systems on LSAT logic games. But those those systems, the ability to do those three things, I mean, it directly translates to exactly your law school exams. Yep. And that's why it correlates with grades. Yeah, that's just totally. So that's only on the like task part of it, like being good at these tasks. Yep. Right. But obviously your ability to work hard is what's going to get you prepared for the exam in the first place. True. The, the, The problem here is when you see a final score, you just have no idea what percentage each of those things contributed to that final score. And I think it's going to vary from person to person. Yeah. That's got to be why schools are skeptical of like real high LSAT, real low GPA people. I mean, which I was one of those. Yeah. You know, they look at me and they don't know what they're getting. Yeah. They they look at that and they go, well, this could just be, you know, sky high <laughs> IQ, no work ethic. Which is <laughs> at least is, somewhat how you've described yourself in the past. Yeah. That certainly was how yeah, I yeah. was, at, yeah. at, you know, in law school. I, I, yeah. I was not what they were hoping for, you know, and that's what you get sometimes when you get somebody who was just all LSAT. That said, if you look at somebody who's high LSAT, low GPA, you also could be getting somebody who does not have the sky high IQ or, you know, ability to just knock tests out of the park. You might actually be getting somebody who worked really hard to prepare for the LSAT because, you know, undergrad was 15 years ago and they were a different person then. And now they give a shit. Oh, absolutely. I think people change. Yep. You can also change your behavior in terms of how hard you work. Yeah. It seems like it would be much more useful to law schools if they forced everybody to take a completely cold test and then gave them the opportunity to retake the test. That would be interesting. As much as you want. Yeah. Do what you want. Come back. Instead, they seem, you know, they take the highest score, but there's the, the talk or the tone or the message that people get out there is that they're adverse to these multiple tests. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, you know, I think that, so that all comes down to they want your application today. Yeah. They don't want you to wait and take the January LSAT. They don't. They they want you applying. If applications are open, they want you applying right now. Yep. And they're going to say anything, including patting you on the head patronizingly about your you know, wow, that's so fascinating that you're going to, yeah, you're going to write your personal statement about arguing your bedtime when you were a kid. (laughs) Great. (laughs) 
Uh, you have lawyer material. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're just telling you anything. Oh, no, you don't need to prep. No, you. Oh, oh your LSAT is. Oh, it's above our 25th percentile. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're, that's sure. Yeah. We admit we admit those people all the time. We admit people with LSATs below our 25th percentile. So, of course. No, you're a great applicant. You should apply right now. We look at applicants holistically. Yeah. Holistically. And they can deceptively <laughs> say, hey, look, on average, people only go up two points when they retake it. That's data from LSAC, but it's also totally misleading because it's not looking at people who prepped versus those who didn't, which would be a totally different metric. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, okay. Anthony continues. Personally, I believe that the work of a lawyer and LSAT testing are related enough that my improvement in LSAT ability transfers to the work of a lawyer, which I think Ben and I would both agree. After all, I have definitely become a better reader studying with LSAT Demon and legal work contains a lot of reading. <laughs> no shit. Last, yep. I would like to clarify some things that were said in episode 373. While, I, while IQ is largely genetically determined, IQ is not entirely inherent. Studies that separated twins into households of different wealth found, colon, children raised in households with 99th percentile incomes had IQ scores one standard deviation higher than their twins, who were raised in households with 15%, 15th percentile incomes. In other words, a difference of three standard deviations in wealth is associated with a one standard deviation difference in IQ. IQ does change throughout life, but different measures change differently. For instance, crystallized intelligence tends to increase with age, whereas fluid intelligence tends to decrease with age. Do you know the difference between those two? I don't. I do not. Okay. Despite these things, sorry, despite these changes, stratum two measures remain remarkably well correlate, correlated. Please let me know if you have any questions or think I am misrepresenting IQ psychometrics. We have no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trust me, I would call bullshit in a heartbeat if I thought I could. But you seem like you, well, you certainly know more than I do. So thank you very much for writing in. Um, Anthony, Ben, any last comments about IQ and LSAT? Yeah, I just wanted to say one last thing about this second to last paragraph. Um, I remember a long time ago reading something that said IQ is at most determined by genetics. Only only 50% of it is determined by genetics at most. I don't know if that's true. I just remember that stuck out to me because I was like, wow, okay. So IQ is something I would think is predominantly genetic, but that thing that I was reading was saying, no, no, at most it's 50%, but I have no idea <laughs> what to make of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that seems kind of supported by what Anthony is saying here. Um, if like genetically identical twins can have 15, uh, can have a full standard deviation difference IQs based on living in households with different wealth. I mean, that is a pretty dramatic difference in wealth, but it's also, you know, full standard deviation in IQ. So yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks for again, in. Anthony. Yeah, that yeah. was awesome. All right, so the next thing is an email from uh, Erica. Okay. Hi, I was in a CUNY. Do you say? Do they say CUNY for the CUNY? CUNY. Okay, CUNY schools law school admissions one hundred and one Zoom meeting yesterday, and I just wanted to inform you that all scholarships are now need based for CUNY University. I think that's what they say, CUNY. I think so. Okay. They no longer do merit scholarships. You can confirm just to make sure. However, it is posted on their website. Just wanted to let you know so you can update the scholarship estimator. 
best Erica. Yep. And then she sent a screenshot uh, from the email itself. Mm. Or maybe this is from their website. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you want you think we should read all this? I guess. we Well, could. yeah, I mean, OK, so first paragraph is all just bullshit. <laughs> uh, expanding access to legal education is part of our mission and scholarship dollars are meant to defray a portion of your tuition costs. Or you could just lower the tuition. Anyway, they continue <laughs> affordability along with recruitment strategies created to admit a diverse student body is central to our mission. With these priorities as our touchstones, we've made all scholarships need-based. And that's the part that uh, Erica wanted to highlight for us. Okay, well, this is going to be interesting to see what happens. We're both, or at least I'm still reading that book, The Price You Pay for College. And what surprised me in that book, although it's about undergraduate institutions, was that some schools use need-based scholarships to get better students by offering them more need-based aid. And although yeah. the author couldn't prove that, there were plenty of examples where people with higher numbers got more need-based aid, which kind of raises an eyebrow. So I wonder if that's going to happen here, you know, like, oh, okay, it's primarily need-based, but we're also kind of pushing the scale a little bit here this way or that way for different students. That's exactly where I went with it. Are you giving those need-based scholars? Because you're giving them before you know whether they've even accepted admission, right? So you're you're gonna well, I'm I assume. Um, maybe that's maybe that's a false assumption. Maybe, maybe they're but not gonna be, give any scholarship offers. That would be tough though, because how would you know whether to accept it or not without knowing how much you're gonna have to pay? If you're if, especially if you need the money, you're like, wait a sec, I'd like to accept, but how much need-based scholarship money are you going to give me? Because if it's not enough, I can't accept and commit. Oh, but we have all kinds of other aid besides I mean, <laughs> every student is guaranteed a loan package. A loan package. Ugh. Um, I, I, I thought there's something in my head about how the FAFSA was actually required uh, but I could be wrong about that. I, 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 I'm, I'm missing that. Let us know, um, Erica or who, whoever, if we're wrong, let us know about that. Is CUNY actually, um, forcing people to, to fill out, uh, the FAFSA? Seems like they would have to, how else would they know yeah, what you're needing? They would is? have to. Yeah. Um, I would point out here as well that CUNY New York, um, is a, pretty far down the rankings just you know whatever there's nothing wrong with that it's just that it is a regional school um going to lsatdemon.com forward slash scholarships because i think that's the best place to look at schools and 509s and all that good stuff but um cuny is you know 133rd in the country right so between belmont university and university of south dakota Right now, the scholarship estimator is expecting that people with the right LSAT GPA should get scholarships at this school um, because last year they gave. Yeah. So they're giving actually a smaller percentage of their class. were already getting grants. Um, they're only giving grants to 42 percent of the school. Hmm. Wow. So their price is real. <laughs> their price <laughs> to the extent that we can actually determine what their price even is. They have it broken down here per annual and per credit 
Non-resident, 25640 Do you think that's actually their annual tuition? Or do you think their annual tuition is actually $50,000? And that's really just a semester tuition. I, I don't know. Yeah, because then they've got the credits broken down per credit, 1065 which I guess would add up if it's 28 credits a year would add up to just south of $30,000. So that could be right. Anyway, this is already a cheap school and maybe this is a, maybe this is good news. You know, if we take them at their word, maybe they're just like, yeah, <laughs> fuck us news. We're not going to play that rankings game anymore. We're yeah. going to actually do, you know, what we think is fair and give scholarships, you know, based on need. Yeah. I mean, you can put up that that wall and just have the financial committee make decisions solely based on the financial situation of the person who's already been accepted or at least, yeah, already yeah. been accepted. Yep. Yeah. The numbers down in this range. I'm So I just looked at Santa Clara because Santa Clara is a couple clicks lower. Santa Clara okay. only gives 50 percent of their students scholarships. Oh, but there's McGeorge, you know, one click lower. You see McGeorge giving scholarships to 86 percent of their school. So, you know, just like cynically, you're going to start to see that school get outranked. Like they're going to fall in the rankings if they do this. But does it even matter to them? Does it matter to go yeah. from 133 to 150? <laughs> yeah. I mean, who are they actually com competing with? Right. Yeah. New York, ooh, New, New York law school. Okay. So New York law school is right there. 129th in the country. New York Law School giving scholarships to, yeah, only 47% of their class. Who knows? Maybe the local competitors got their heads together and just were like, hey, you want to stop fighting with merit-based scholarship aid? Yeah. It'd be great if they did. I just don't yeah. know if that's actually what they're doing. Yep. Okay. Thank you, Erica, for that update. Yep. We appreciate it. Very much. This next email is from Gabe. Howdy, Ben and Nathan. I've been listening since January of this year and have enjoyed the content you two produce exclamation point. I have started my LSAT prep this month and plan to test in April 2023. What? OK, it's far away. Yeah, that's so far away, Gabe. I don't think there's any point in having a target date. Anyway, I would apply for the 2024 law school season. Yeah, obviously, if you're taking the LSAT that late. I've given myself this long of a window so I can also focus on my college athletics and final classes. Naturally, I do not want to pay for law school. That's all good. I mean, that's fantastic, right? Like prepping with the intention of taking the test way down the road somewhere. That's excellent. I just wouldn't be targeting particularly April 2023. That seems too specific for something so far out. I'm about to register for the last semester of my undergrad and I have an empty elective slot to fill with a class of my choice. Would it be worth my time to find a class that would help me with my LSAT testing? Or should I take an easy class so I can focus on studying? Oh, and here's the two classes. We'll let you make the choice, Ben. Two classes. <laughs> the, the choices are strategic games and social statistics. So far, strategic games sounds way more interesting. Yeah. Strategic games involves an introduction to analytical models, often referred to as games, in which the choices of individual rational actors jointly produce significant outcomes. What Can you give an example of that, Ben? 
Choices of individual rational actors jointly produce significant outcomes. I don't actually don't know what that means. Prisoner's dilemma. Okay. That type of shit. Different, these little different paradoxes of how yeah. people are going to behave when their individual rational actions are going to jointly produce significant outcomes in the prison, in the prisoner's dilemma. That's the classic one, right? Where two individual rational actors, both acting in their best interest lead to the worst possible <laughs> combined outcome for the two. Sure, sure. I see. But I didn't know what significant outcomes meant. It's like significant in what way. But I see uh, maybe opposite or unpredictable or not yeah. unpredictable, but surprising given their rational yeah. behavior. But OK, sure. Yeah, another example would be the probably the tragedy of the commons. Anyway. Um, oh, second bullet point. Topics include games such as Prisoner's Dilemma and the Stag Hunt. I've never heard of that one. Collective action problems, bargaining, signaling, principal agent models, and the limitations of such approaches given insights from cognitive psychology. That class sounds awesome. You should take that class. That's my opinion. Okay. Second Social option. statistics. Enable students to both calculate and interpret statistical analyses within the context of social science research. The course introduces basic concepts of statistical analysis. Discussion of descriptive statistics, including frequency distributions, graphs, and measures of central tendency and variability, relationships between variables and measures of association, including bivariate regression and correlations, concludes with an introduction to inferential statistics, including t-tests, ANOVA, and chi-square. Both classes are equally interesting to me, but I think one might be easier based on accounts from my friends. I'd appreciate your thoughts. That's coming from Gabe. All right. So keeping in mind that Gabe wants to continue college athletics and classes for a semester and LSAT prep at the same time. What do you think Gabe should do this spring? Strategic games or social statistics? Uh, well, I have to agree with you. The strategic games sounds much more interesting. That said, people need to understand stats. Most people don't. Um, I could see that being a valuable class. And apparently to Gabe, these both sound equally interesting. Uh, that said, I would just take whichever one you, you think is easier. Yeah, because it's critical that you get an A in whatever class you choose. And uh, so I agree, probably take the one that you know you're going to get an A in. Um, that said, I took a bunch of statistics classes in my undergrad, and I do not find those the, the higher level stats stuff. I'm just never going to do it myself. I'm not a social science researcher. I'm not going to be like busting out SPSS to do regression analyses on variables. You know, I, I, I'm sure UC Davis would be crushed to hear that that's not what I ended up doing with my education that I got there uh, in their managerial economics program. But yeah, I've never once in my life done any of that shit in an actual job setting. Yeah. I mean, I think these classes can go too far, like trying to create. Yeah. SAS, right. That's what those programs are called. I can't remember now, but, um, I don't know. Just understanding statistics is I think helpful. It's just, well, yeah, basic stuff, basic probability, you know, like understanding what, um, standard deviation is, you know, sure. understanding what a bell curve is, understanding that distributions can have different shapes. Like all that stuff is really useful. I think knowledge, I just seems like a lot of this stuff is going to get way too specific. Like you're yeah. going to actually be doing the numbers crunching. And I don't think there's a lot of lawyers or one lawyer out there who's doing 
regression analyses. No, no, you're going to depend on somebody else. Even if you could do it yourself, you wouldn't want to rely on yourself. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, digging deep into things like the prisoner's dilemma, I imagine that those kind the it just seems like a much more broadly useful, like good things to have in your brain. I don't know. There cool. you go, Gabe. There's your counselor. <laughs> <laughs> you want to read this one from Nafaset? Yeah, Nafaset. Nafaset wrote us last time, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Dear Ben and Nathan, thank you for your answer to my question on today's episode. There we go. Oh, yeah. My, di my diagnostic score was 147. My strongest section was reading comp, then logical reasoning, followed by games with only six correct answers. I've used Khan Academy only to get to know what the LSAT is. Okay, that's an excellent diagnostic, especially because you sucked so badly at the games. Starting at 147, I mean, you can get to 160 just by unlocking the games. You've got work to do still in reading comp and LR as well. But if you perfect those games, you're going to already be in the 160s. And uh, that's awesome. Okay. She continues, I plan to apply to Harvard, NYU, Columbia, Yale, Georgetown, Duke, and probably Stanford. It is better for me to stay in the East Coast. These law schools allow me to take an international and comparative law path with focus in international dispute resolution during my second and third year. I don't, who cares? You're t it's, it's Harvard, NYU, Columbia, Yale. Like the, those schools don't, I don't care what particular paths, you know? No, it's no. Just, yeah, people become... <laughs> You're getting a degree. You can become a specialist after you graduate by going into whatever field you want to go into. And the higher the school, the easier that's going to be, regardless of whether they have a specialty class. You just could that. have stopped at Harvard. I mean, like when you say you're going to these elite, you know, these are all top 10 schools or maybe not Georgetown, but they're all badass enough schools that they're going to open whatever doors you want opened. Yep. And so that I, that like, you know, especially if you're like, oh, Stanford doesn't have an international and comparative law path. Oh, well, I don't want to go to that school. Nope, doesn't matter. But I don't think that's what Nefesat is actually saying. It's it's probably the schools that aren't on the list that Nefesat should really be considering. Other other highly ranked schools and they don't even necessarily have to be that highly ranked. You just have to do well at them. Uh, and I think you're going to be able to pursue yeah. The path you want to pursue. I mean, just there are other like East Coast schools. Like, how is UVA not on this list? Yeah. You know, and yep. Nafasat, what I'm saying is if you look at, if you're like, oh, well, I no UVA because they don't have an international and comparative law path, I, I don't care. <laughs> it's still UVA. Yeah. I, I'd be shocked if there's like really, oh, you can't do what you want to do from UVA. I, I, I can't imagine. Okay. Her questions. Number one, do you consider that it is possible to improve my score up to 177 to 178, 30 plus points in five to seven months? Uh, she's willing to sign up for the live classes. Um, oddly, oddly specific number. Possible thousand percent. Talk to Ala, our brand new teacher in the live program who improved by 30 or 31 points into yep. the 170s. So is it possible? Yes. Can can I guarantee it? No. Would I bet on it? I don't know. Probably not. But depending on who you are, you know, like how much conscientiousness you got. 
How much work? Ola did all the practice tests three times. Yep. You know, are you willing to do that kind of work? So five to seven months. I mean, you're putting a time limit on that. That's yeah, going to make it that. harder. That makes it harder for sure. Yep. Yeah. Ola took more than five to seven months, like a lot yep. more than five to seven months. Other people have made a 30 point improvement in five to seven months, though. So, yeah, it's possible. I mean, it's hard enough as it is. And then just adding the time limit just makes it harder. So and maybe you can do it, but I, we don't know. We don't know enough. You might not know enough about yourself either. You might just have to start doing it and then see how hard you can work. Yeah. Also, I'm not sure that that very specific, you know, 177 to 178. Yeah. Just get into the up upper 170s. Just try to get up there. Well, also, you need to get to 150, then 155, then 160, then 165. Yep. There's just so many intermediate points between you and 170. Anything that it feels kind of crazy to me to be focusing on this target score. But yep. Question number two, what advice would you give to me to improve my writing skills? One of the primary reasons why I'm able to take, why I aim to take a JD path instead of an LLM, despite the fact that I hold a law degree already, is to improve my writing and speaking skills up to the level of native English speaking attorneys as I aim to stay and practice law in the USA. Hmm. Would you pursue a different degree to improve your writing? No. That seems That's like a, a very expensive writing course. Well, she says it's one of the reasons. She says it's one of the primary reasons, though. Yeah. And if that's your main reason, that's a real bad plan. I mean, JDs generally are, what, at least a couple times as expensive as an LLM? LLM is like a one-year program, right? Yeah, it's a one-year program. Or Yeah, I think. Depends on the LLM, maybe. But um, look, you can... <laughs> You can get books, for example, Brian Garner has a book called Garner's Modern English Usage. Uh, there, He has another book, I can't remember the title, but it has exercises in it. <laughs> That's $20. Start doing those exercises. Um, even studying for something like the SAT, which tests you on writing skills, could improve your writing faster and for way cheaper than buying a JD. Yeah, the... The, you're not paying for education when you pay for a JD. You're paying for the degree. You're paying for the degree. You're paying for the the cachet of the school, the cachet of the degree, the networking opportunities. It, it, but any law school gives you essentially the same legal education. I mean, within broad parameters. I I can't to get better at writing. I can't imagine going to law school to get better at writing. Well, you're you're paying a lot of money, and you're also not getting something that's going to help you as much as even just hiring a writing coach. <laughs> they do a terrible, terrible job of instructing you on writing, and then and also speaking skills. How many opportunities does a typical law student get to speak? Oh, hardly none. You have to sign up for moot court and actually compete. You have to yeah. make these opportunities and that's once a year. Yeah. I mean, you're going to like in your big lecture classes, depending where you go, Harvard, you could have 400 people in a single lecture. 
maybe not 400, but hundreds in a single lecture, possibly. And you are going to speak in that class like once <laughs> per semester. Yeah. No, this you is know? not the way to go. I mean, in fact, some people learn, pick up bad habits for writing in law school, which for is sure. why before I did LSAT prep, I was working for one of the best legal writing consultants in the country, helping summer associates, helping one first years, second years, even partners write, learn how to write better because they didn't learn that in law school. I didn't There's learn shit about writing. I mean, I had legal writing and research in my first semester, you know, and so that's it's like taught one of the, by a third three L, right? Two L. <laughs> 2L. <laughs> Even worse. There was a 2L who was my TA and he was great. But yeah, I mean, he like, uh, he gave me some notes on my briefs, but it certainly wasn't like helping me with the clarity of my writing. It was more like, Hey, you forgot to leave out, you know, like this part of your argument, you're, you're, you get, you need this citation. It's all, it's like all about blue booking. It's yeah. not about actual improving your writing skills. That's the last, I know. <laughs> It's just a, that's a terrible reason, I think, to do the JD. I think you need to take that off of your list of why you're looking at the JD instead of the LLM. Yeah. I would immerse myself in English. I think you should read and write and watch TV and talk to people in English all the time. And, and continually invite correction because people aren't going to yeah. correct you. Yeah, right. Hey, can you edit this for me? Like, can you tell me if I do something stupid? How does this sound? No, we don't say that. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tell me more. Yeah. Because they're not going to want to correct you. Looking up words in the dictionary, both as you read and critically as you write to make sure that you're using the right words. Yeah. Reading the newspaper would be great. Something like the New York Times, get a subscription to that $4 a month because those writers write well. <laughs> And they use a lot of good words. A JD program just seems like the last place you would want to be learning that shit. JD. No, you, arcane words that no one uses. <laughs> J, right. Reading shit from 18 whatever. Yeah. That doesn't help you. Not only that, but as soon as you're in law school, you're in this intense academic competition against the other people in your class who majority are English native English speakers. Yeah. So like you think you're there to learn English, but you're actually there to compete in English <laughs> and your professors aren't even going to give you any feedback. Like you're going to get your exam back and it's just going to have a grade on it and nothing else. Yep. Or it's going to have a series of check marks down the page and nothing else. Yep. Like those professors aren't taking time to look at your written work and actually give you useful feedback. It's just not what law school is about. Question number three. Do you have any tips and tricks on how to develop an LSAT study plan? We hate that phrase, by the way. <laughs> study plan? <laughs> no, tips and tricks and oh, study. And tips and tricks. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's so much simpler than you think. You, you got to just do a little bit of LSAT today. Do an official question, review it, understand it. If you don't understand it, ask us a question, do another question. It's how many questions, real questions can you do and learn? That's it. Yeah. Sign up for the demon and start working on one question at a time using our best in class 
explanations. I mean, I think it's clear that we have the best videos, the best written explanations, the ask button, which is just killer when people need more help. I, I think that's all you need. You, you don't need a study plan. You just do the demon and you're good. Here's the, here's the biggest problem with study plans is that they assume your learning is going to progress in this linear fashion yeah. at a certain pace. You yeah. have no idea how quickly or how slowly you're going to learn something, which is why you do one problem, you understand everything about it, and then you go to the next problem. It's the fastest way to learn. Yep. Okay. Thank Thanks you for writing for in. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, this next email, I don't know. Oh, it's from Mary. Mary says, hey, Ben Nathan and LSAT team. I'm currently working my way through the archives in episode 326 you discuss letting your strengths guide your future. I think this is a really cool idea, but I agree with Ben that it's difficult for some to identify generalized strengths, especially with limited work experience. As part of my graduate fellowship, I took the strengths finder test and I did a workshop on what my strengths meant. Given that I'm already a very analytical person, I was surprised by how much I got out of this experience. I think specifically having the language for what our strengths are is a huge benefit to us in our LSAT prep, law school and careers. I was wondering if you had any interest in incorporating Strengths Finder into the Demon. I would assume they, Gallup, would give you a discount on a large number of access codes for the test, and I bet many would pay for it. Anyway, if incorporating it into the Demon isn't something you want to do, maybe just sharing this suggestion with listeners will prompt them to go take it themselves. There's also a corresponding book that goes through each strength in detail in case anyone interested is is interested in reading more and then we have a link here to um gallup.com strengths finder and you can buy it if you want but i did not want so instead mary continues i also found this free version which has slightly different strengths but seemed pretty useful too that was at test.highfivetest.com. Yep. The numeral five. Test.high, the number five, test.com. And Ben and I both did it. Mary said her five top five strengths were thinker, philomath, 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 strategist, analyst, and winner. Winner is one of the strengths. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't read about you're a winner. That's your <laughs> strength. You win. Yeah. Um, so I did not do it, but or sorry, uh we we both did it. I didn't see winner on there, is what I meant to say. We both did it, Ben. Any uh similarities and differences between our various strengths? Yeah, let's take a look a at them. Maybe we should <laughs> in fact all five of the top strengths are totally different and they are also arranged in different places. Okay. Yeah. You want my read, top five. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and, and this, um, what was it? A hundred questions, something like that. I have no idea. I just started clicking. <laughs> yeah. And it's real easy to do. You just do it like sort of stream of consciousness, right? It's just like this. It, they're all just a bunch of statements that either a hundred percent describe you or like negative a hundred percent describe you. Yep. And you just pick anywhere on the spectrum and then it comes back and it tells you your strengths. I came out as number one strategist, number two brainstormer. Those are both in the thinking category. Yep. Category. Then I got commander, <laughs> philomath, and problem solver. Philomath is another one in the thinking. So I was almost 50% in that thinking category. Okay. And Ben, yep. you were. 
Number one is focus expert. Number two is timekeeper. Number three is catalyst. Number four is analyst. And number five is deliverer. Um, so number one, two, and five, focus expert, timekeeper, and deliverer are all in the doing category. Yeah. Did you read anything about the specific strengths and did they, it's, it's kind of horoscope like, isn't it? It, it sort of, um, there's like vague shit there that sort of just, you could end up anybody agreeing with anything. Yeah. Well, maybe this has to do with my doing, um, persona, but (laughs) there is part of me that's definitely like, uh, like, and (laughs) like, I don't get excited about, I'm like, okay, I'm a, I'm a timekeeper. He didn't want to think about it. (laughs) So when it came back as a timekeeper, you were just like, yeah, I got to get the fuck out of here. I got to go. go. Yeah. I got stuff to do. And what am I supposed to take away from this? Um, yeah. So what did you find? (laughs) Cause I, I ended here. I, I read about the 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 five, you know, strengths that it thought were my number one strengths. Yep. And I found it pretty I found it pretty interesting. You know, um, strategists look at the big picture, which enables them to easily find the best way out of the clutter okay. because connecting the dots comes naturally to them. They may get impatient with people who make slower decisions. <laughs> and I was like. Yeah, like yeah. a lot of that speaks to me. I have I'm like, I'm good at connecting the dots and it's an LSAT skill, right? They say some random premise and then they say some other random premise. And if there's any connection between those two, I immediately find that connection. So, yeah, like that is certainly a strength of mine. Brainstormer. Brainstormers get excited when asked to come up with ideas where the sky is the limit. They enjoy connecting the seemingly unconnectable and quickly get bored by closed minded people and standard practices. It 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 is. I, I think it's worth how long did it take you to do it, Ben? The test? Oh, yeah. Probably 10 minutes. Yeah, takes 10 minutes. They will start spamming you. They want to try to sell you a free report, you know, a full report. Not a free report. They give you a free report. Then they try to sell you a full report. And you can easily, um, you know, just unsubscribe. I mean, some of this does seem to be true about you, Nathan. But part of my problem with this, too, is it's the self-reported. So it's like you tell them a bunch of things. This is what you're talking about with the horoscope, right? And then they're telling you back essentially what you said to them. So... I don't yeah. know how much to take away from it. It's like, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I agree know, with man. this, but that's because I kind of said it. So then it's just well, reinforcing. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but like you did it kind of rapid fire, right? You weren't really thinking about it very much. You're just like, this does or does not describe me. And I would say that those are pretty accurate, like for you, like your things on the list. I mean, mm-hmm. absolutely. Like you're the one who is going to make sure that we're focused on the right things. You're the one who's going to make sure that we're like on schedule on task. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that the first, th- the, the, those three red ones there for you in the doing family focus yeah. expert, timekeeper and deliverer. It's like, yeah, I mean, that's why you manage the software development for the demon. Yeah. Look at this. Uh, <laughs> um, if you log in, you can, you know, read these uh, short descriptions of each one of the ones, but commander for me. Okay. So it's the only green skill that I had at all. Mm-hmm. And the green skills are the motivating ones. Yep. 
But listen to how it describes me as a uh, as a motivator commander. Commanders love to be in charge, to speak up and to be asked for their opinion. They do not shy away from conflict and may get frustrated by those who beat around the bush. And yeah, again, I just read that and I was like, that's pretty much me. Like, I don't mind telling you what I think about things. I don't really mind if people are going to be mad about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's like that's part of what you do as a business owner. You have a vision. Yep. Anyway, are you on any of yours? I would love to know what it says was, about these things. Yeah, uh, I did this on a different computer. I'm trying to log in because my password uh, should be in the cloud, in. but it's not. Yeah. yeah, it's not working. So. All right. Well, no big deal. Anyway, I think that uh, listeners, you might get something out of it if you go to test.highfivetest.com uh, and see what your own strengths are. I do think it's a really good thing to think about. Right. Yeah. I mean. I guess we were talking about it back on episode 326, but I pretty firmly believe that people should be going in the direction of the things that they are strong in. Certainly. If you think of life as a bunch of competitions, essentially, and there's billions and you can pick which ones you want to compete in, why not pick the ones where you also have another advantage because it comes naturally to you because you like it because whatever. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. I think that's it. That's it. Be LSAT famous. Get on an upcoming show by emailing help at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions about the LSAT demon, email help at lsatdemon.com. You can also check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode 374 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. <laughs>